But being that we're going into the new year and he's going to be doing the vision casting next week, he asked if I could do a message that would be uh, uh, inspiring or encouraging uh, about the gospel and, and, our, and our task to spread it to the lost world around us. And so I'm going to be speaking today from uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And the title of my message this morning is Not Intimidated. And so as you're opening up there, if you have your Bibles, I'm just going to uh, say an opening prayer. And so if you can, go ahead and just bow your heads with me at this time. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. We just, um, we give you all praise and glory, Lord, and we just thank you for this day. We ask, Lord, that, that you just uh, speak through this message, Lord. Uh, I pray that they hear more directly from you than they do actually from me. Because their inspiration, their challenge, their, the, the need for them to not be intimidated, that has to come ultimately from, from, from you as the source of our all things, not, not from me, Lord. And so we just pray that, that you minister to them and that we just clear away the clutter of our minds and our hearts from the week and just help us to focus in as to what you are saying this morning. In Jesus' precious name we all say, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> A true story has been told about uh, this famous uh, chess champion, who was on vacation over in Europe. And while he was over there, he was uh, kind of going on this tour of all these different museums because he was kind of a, a collector of fine art, and he loved going to these museums, looking at these paintings, uh, sculptures, different things like that. And so he was at this one particular museum, and he saw this one painting up on the wall that just totally captivated his attention. Um, as he was looking at it, it was a painting of, of a chess match. And so obviously being a chess champion, it's obvious as to why this really just uh, galvanized his attention. And with the chess match, on one side of the chessboard was the devil. And he was reaching out and he was about to make a move on the chessboard. And the devil was just kind of uh, grinning from ear to ear. He was very jolly. Uh, he was very happy. Um, you can just see just, just this excitedness about him as he was about to make this move on the chessboard. And on the other side of the painting, on the other side of the board, was this young man. And this young man just had this intense look of fear that was just totally all over his body. His eyes were wide open. His teeth were chattering. The, there was sweat coming off his forehead. His, his knees were knocking. He, he was just totally just this picture of, of fear. And the concept of the painting became very clear when the chess champion looked at the bottom of the painting and it simply read, Checkmate. The devil was about to make the final move to win this young man's soul. And the young man just sat there with no options. And so the chess champion, he was just, just galvanized by this painting. He was just staring at it, staring at it, staring at it. He stared out for like over an hour. Finally, uh, he, he walked away, and he went to find uh, the, the manager uh, of the museum. And he asked him, would you happen to have a chess board around here? The manager said, well, uh, I'm sure we got one somewhere. Let me see what I can find for you. And so after a while, the, the manager came back and brought the chess champion his chess board, uh, and he brought him a little stool. And so the, the, he set it up uh, on the uh, chess board on a stool, and he was looking up at the paint, looking down at the board, looking up at the paint, looking down at the board. He wanted to make sure that he had everything on the board identical to the way it was in the painting. And so he was staring at the board and kind of looking at it from different angles and stuff and just kind of looking at every possible angle. Uh, off of what the devil was about to do. And after a while, he began to smile. He began to grin. And, and, he, and he looked up at the painting and he said, Young man, I wish somehow 
you could be animated today. I wish somehow you could be, that you can come to life because I've got some good news for you. You know, being a chess champion, there, there is something on the board that I see that obviously you don't see. There's something on the board that I see that obviously the devil doesn't see. Because if you could see what I see, it would change the whole nature of this game. When I think about that story, I, I think about just uh, the whole uh, course of history uh, of mankind. God, at the beginning of time, created angels because he wanted angels to, to be able to bring him worship as he was obviously worthy of. Lucifer was the one who was appointed to be the chief angel over the worship. But after a while, Lucifer became jealous and he wanted the worship for himself. And so he ended up converting a third of the angels to, to go over to his side and they ended up rebelling against God. God, instead of destroying Lucifer and his, uh, his partners, he instead decides to, uh, to turn them into demons and to cast them down out of heaven. Then God makes an inter interesting move. He creates man a little lower than the angels so that he could be able to show what was possible through lesser beings who were dependent upon him as opposed to greater beings who were in rebellion against him. This kind of put the whole cosmic chess match into play because next satan makes the next move as he goes down to adam and eve and he uh, convinces them to sin by eating of uh, the fruit that they weren't supposed to god then responds by going down and taking an animal and slaying it and providing redemptive covering for adam and eve and salvation first enters into human history satan then responds by getting adam and eve's uh, children to, to be quarreling amongst each other and causes seth to kill abel the um Satan then, um, God then responds by uh, allowing Eve to become pregnant one more time, and she gave birth to a little boy named Seth, and the Bible says that the word of God was once, once again heard on the lips of man. Satan then responded by going into the world as, as the world began to populate, and he went into the world and caused the world to be influenced by demons and got them to start sinning against God once more. God responds by going down and finding a man named Noah and saying, I want you to build an ark by day, and at night I want you to pass out tracks that simply say, it's going to rain. God then judges the world with the flood, save Noah and his family. As the world starts to repopulate, Satan goes down and finds a man named Nimrod and convinces him to get the people to build this Tower of Babel so that it can be a, a monument unto themselves. And uh, humanism entered into uh, the world as a, as a religion, and they began to worship themselves instead of God. God came down and scattered their language and caused them to scatter all over the world with different languages. Satan then responded by going into these different cultures and getting the different cultures to start sinning against God. God went down and found a man named Abraham and said, I'm going to build a nation through you. Satan then responds by going down finding a man named Pharaoh and causing Pharaoh to bring all the children of God on, onto slavery in Egypt. God responds by finding a man named Moses and saying, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, set my people free. And Satan then responds by going down and getting God's people trapped between the Red Sea and, uh, and Pharaoh's army. God responds by coming down and parting the Red Sea. The whole Old Testament is move, counter move, move, counter move. God moves. Satan responds to God. Satan moves. God responds to Satan. And we come to the end of the Old Testament, and it ends up being this kind of like a, a timeout. And both sides kind of sit back and study the board. And then at the beginning of the New Testament, it's kind of like we kind of do a little bit of catch-up as to what's been taking place up to this point. Because it says so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot so-and-so, who begot Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Up to this point, 
God had found a man and used a man. God said, I'm tired of all this mess. Let me come down here and take care of this mama myself. And so we see God enter into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus then lives on earth for 30 years. And during the final three years of his ministry, of his life, he makes disciples, followers of himself. And he begins to teach them what it means to carry on the, the good news to the rest of the world after his resurrection. And Satan, this entire time, was looking for a way to trap Jesus. He was looking for a way to kill off Jesus. And then finally, Satan was able to get Jesus illegally nailed to a cross, therefore having him murdered. And he thinks that he finally has God in checkmate. But that was when Jesus pulled what can only be described as the ultimate quarterback sneak. And he defeats death and is resurrected from the dead on the third day. And that was the final move. Amen. After the resurrection, Jesus comes and he gathers his disciples and he gathers them uh, on a hillside. And that is what we have, what we're about to read, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there or you can just look up to the screen. But in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, as we read this, we recognize that this is what we know as the Great Commission. Jesus is sending them out to do this incredible thing of winning the entire world to himself, to turn them into disciples, followers of Christ. But he knows that this is an intimidating concept. He knows that it's intimidating for them back then. He knows that it's intimidating for us today. And so wired in to the Great Commission are some very key reasons as to why we do not have to be intimidated about spreading the gospel. And that is going to be some of the things that we are going to be looking at this morning. One of the key things, one of the first things, is that the fact that he says, All authority has been given to me. By virtue of my death and resurrection, I am now the bottom line. By virtue of my death and resurrection, I am now the final authority in this world. Anything else that comes into your life, drugs, alcohol, lust, no matter what it is, anything else that comes into your life and tries to claim authority over you is a false impression. I am the only authority in your life. And he wants them to get this because there are some key concepts about this idea of this word uh, authority. This word authority is one of many Greek words that has the root meaning of power. One of the most common Greek words that has the root meaning of power in the New Testament is this word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite. And so it's kind of this idea of raw power, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But the word that Jesus uses for this word authority is this word exousia. Exousia means authority or power in legitimate hands. It means authority in legitimate hands. The picture is a cop and a bank robber both having a gun. Both have firepower, but only one has a badge. Only one has the legitimate authority behind his name. And so this is the idea uh, of authority. And Jesus needs them to get this concept because he knows that this challenge is intimidating. 
but he wants them to see that in order to counter that, he wants them to see that they go out with his authority. It's like many of us like watching uh, football. And as you watch football, you see these players come out onto the field. Uh, these players are, are big, uh, they're strong, they're muscular, they're fast, and then they have all of that uh, football gear and equipment on. If one of them was in here today and they tackled one of us, they would put us into a world of hurt. And, and the key thing is, though, as we watch football, as powerful, as much dunamis as those football players have, they're not, they're not the most powerful person on the field. The most powerful person on the field, the one with the most authority, are these little skinny guys running around in striped shirts with a whistle. <laughs> now, a lineman can knock you down, but the ref can throw you out. And what God wants us to get, what Jesus wants us to get, is that it may seem intimidating, and the devil may try to come and intimidate you to try to stop you from spreading the gospel, but Jesus wants you to remember, you hold the whistle. You're the one who goes with his authority. Amen? And so the question at this point must be, how do we piggyback on God's authority? How do we piggyback on the authority of Jesus so that it transfers into our lives? Well, as we look at this passage, there is an imperative or a command in this passage. And that imperative or command is make disciples or followers of Jesus. And that imperative is surrounded by three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, you may be saying, okay, so, so what, what, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you saying there, Pastor? You're kind of losing me. Well, well let, me, let me clarify. Whenever you see that particular grammar structure in the Greek, what you have is the means of accomplishing the command. In other words, if we are going, if we are baptizing, if we are teaching, then we are in the disciple-making business. It is when we are doing those things that we are effectively making followers of Christ. doesn't mean you have to be doing all three because all of us have different giftings and are, are better at different things. But we need to be busy about one of those things. And it is by doing that that, that authority transfers over into our life. In, in, the, in the Greek world of uh, disciples and masters, this is the idea referred to as authority transferred. If we are partnering with Christ in doing, doing these things, going, baptizing, and teaching, if we are partnering with Christ in those things, then that authority transfers over into our life so that we can walk in that power. In 2001, I, I got accepted into the, the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. And, and I got to go to Fresno uh, for this whole week of training. Eight hours a day, Monday through Friday, we were going through this training. And the cool thing about it was that it coincided with one of the Billy Graham's crusades that was taken there in Fresno. And so I was going to school during the day, and then we'd be able to go back to the hotel, rest for a while. And then I was going to the crusade at night, and I was able to partner with Billy for putting on the crusade. When I got to the crusade, when I got to, to Bulldog Stadium where it was taking place, there was all these people who were driving there. There was these long lines of people waiting to get into the stadium. But I didn't have to go and wait in the long lines. I was able to go over to these private entrances. And when I got to the private entrance, the, the people there, the security would say, well, why should we let you in? And I was able to pull out this little badge and said, uh, all access pass. And I was able to say, because I'm with Billy. 
This is the same private access that Billy Graham walked through. This is the same private access that Third Day walked through. This is the same private access that Mercy Me walked through. This was the same private access that Pastor Lorenzo walked through, all because I was with Billy. As I got inside the stadium, I was able to go backstage and kind of get to go and meet some of the different performers who were there for this event. And as I walked over there, again, there was another gate. And there was another security guy there saying, well, why should we let you in? And again, just flip out the badge. I'm with Billy. At at the end of the night, after all these people had got saved, um, it was time to leave the event. And there was all these thousands of people that were trying to to scurry out just a couple of exits uh, in the stadium. I was able to, at that point, once again, able to go out uh, the private entrances, now used as private exits, and I was able to, to leave out of that area, show my badge, say, I'm with Billy. I was able to get back to my car and be already back into my hotel before most other people had even found their cars. Everything took place at night because I was with Billy. This task may seem kind of intimidating to spread the gospel. This task may seem kind of intimidating to be uh, about partnering with Christ for the Great Commission. But what Jesus wants us to know is that when those things get intimidating, when the world tries to make things intimidating on us, when the enemy tries to make things intimidating on us, we just simply need to remember that we're with him because we are partnering with Jesus Christ in this task. And so it is by that 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 authority transfers over into our life. But We do have to get this one concept, though. If we're not partnering with Christ for these things, then we don't get to share in any of the authority. We have to be partnering with Christ in the divine program if we are going to be sharing in the divine authority. If we are not partnering with them in these things, then that authority, that power doesn't transfer over into our lives. Sometimes there's a lot of us that are frustrated with things going on in our life. We're frustrated. We sometimes feel like, like prayer isn't being answered. We feel like, like things are just overcoming us. And often I have to ask that person, what are you doing to be actively partnering with Christ and the task that he has given us? It doesn't have to be, you have to be perfect to any one of them. It doesn't have to mean that you're doing all three of them, but we have to be partnering with Christ at some level in order for that authority to be transferred over into our lives. And so we have to get that. And one of the people that I love in the New Testament is the, is the Apostle Paul. Paul totally got this idea of authority transferred. And he walked in it, and he could not be intimidated no matter what the people of the day did to him in his life. One day they came to Paul, and they said, well, Paul, we're going to kill you. And he said, that's cool to die is gain. And he said, okay, well, then we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. That's cool to live as Christ. Well, we're not going to kill you. We'll let you live, but we're going to torture you. Well, that's cool. I, re- I reckon that the trials and tribulation I face in this life is not worthy to be compared to the glories that will be revealed to me. So if you kill me, I'm going to be with Christ. If you let me live, I'm going to serve Christ. If you punish me and you torture me, I'm just going to be receiving more glories from Christ. So bring it on, homeboy. It's all Christ. (laughs) He cannot be intimidated because he was totally consumed with Jesus Christ. And so if we are supposed to be doing these three things, what exactly do they mean? Let's first look at what, what did Jesus mean when he said that we must go? Well, you can study the word go in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Ugaritic. And when you study the word go, it means go. It means don't stay. It means to go out to the lost world and be a shining example of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. It means to go out and to take the good news message to the lost world. It means to, to it doesn't mean that we have to have some sort of legalistic witnessing program. 
It simply means that we are to go out and be a living testimony before a dying and hurting world. When we come to church, this is kind of like uh, the place where we often think that this is where real ministry takes place. And that's not the purpose of church. Church is supposed to be the place where we come to get equipped to go out there and do real ministry. Church is not simply the place where we are supposed to come to be reminded about the gospel or encouraged about the gospel or challenged by the gospel. This is supposed to be the place where we come to get equipped to go out and minister the gospel. That is the whole purpose of the church. It's like uh, returning to the illustration of, of football. It's like when, when we watch a football game and, and they go into the huddle, we're not really watching a football game in order to watch these guys in a huddle. We don't mind if they're in a huddle only as long as it's only for a little while. What we want to know is, having been now in the huddle, can you now score? What we want to know is what they are going to do about the 11 other men on the other side of the ball who are daring them to go public with their private conversation. We want to know, having been in the huddle, can you now score for your team? And when we come to church, the whole idea is that this is the place where we come to have our huddle. This is the place where we come to to get our instruction. This is the place where we come to get our, our guidance. And what God wants to know is, having been in the huddle, having been in the church, can you now score for God? God wants to know what are you are going to do about the world outside that door who is daring us to go public with our private conversations. That is what is on God's mind. And so as we go, the question can sometimes become, well, well why, why must we go? Well, why is it so important that we go and deliver the good news? Well, because people don't know that they're lost. People think that, that the choices that they're making and the lifestyle that they're living, people think that everything's okay. People just think, well, well I'm not hurting anybody else, so what's the big deal? Well, well let me paint it to you this way. If, if, if it was the dead of summer and it was 110 degrees and you had relatives that came to visit you, and they said, man, it is hot here in Vegas. I don't see how y'all can live here, man. But, you know, I, I hear you guys got this, this really cool uh, Kern River. Uh, I think I want to go up there and go for a swim in the Kern River. You know, would you sit there and say, well, you know, he, he, he is right. You know, it, it is hot. Uh, you know, he does have a point. And, and this is a free world. There's no reason that I should force my views on him or there's no reason why I should force my opinion of that river on him, I should just let them go and go for that swimming current river. Would you say that? I, I hope not. Uh, we would say, no, don't, don't do that. This is not the thing to do. This is not the route to take. Yes, it is hot around here. Yes, it is difficult to live in this world. Yes, it is challenging to put up with the stuff that we have to put up with in this world. But don't go do that. Let's go to our friends. Uh, I have a friend's place. They, they got a swimming pool. There's the aquatics. There's a lot of other things. There's better choices than to go on this route. We can't look at the world around us and say, you're right. Life is difficult. Life is painful. Life's been hard to you. You know, it, it is okay. Go ahead. Do your drugs. Get drunk every night. Go ahead and do all the stuff that you're doing because who am I to force my opinion on you? We can't do that. The world needs to know that they're lost. And that's why Jesus says that, that we must go. We must be willing to take the good news to the people who are hurting the most. Because people don't know that they're lost. And so if we are to go, 
well, then what are we supposed to do? Well, it says that we must baptize. He wants us to baptize people. So, so does that mean that we're just simply to get them wet? No, not at all. This word baptize in the Greek that he uses is this word baptizo. And this word baptizo comes from the, the cloth makers of the day. If the woman of the house came to the cloth makers and said, well, I need some, some uh, purple cloth, well, then he would take the white cloth and he would baptizo dip it into the dye so that it would come out and it would come out as now purple cloth. Or if the woman said, well, I need some uh, blue cloth, then he would take the white cloth and he would dip it into blue dye. He would baptize it into the blue dye and so it would come out as blue cloth. That what was taking place by that baptizo, by that baptizing, was that there was now a change in the categorization of that material. It was now no longer white cloth, it was purple cloth, or red cloth, or blue cloth, or whatever it was that he baptized it in. There was a change in the categorization of that material. It now had a visibly different identification to it. This is the idea of baptism. When people get baptized, it is not so much that we are bringing about salvation. We are bringing visible attention to the fact that there is salvation in that person's life. That is why we must baptize people. It is to bring visible identification to an internal transformation. Ten years ago, I was standing in another church, and I was standing up at the front of the church, and, uh, and I was dressed uh, in a white zoot suit. Don't hold it against me. I'm Mexican. Uh, <laughs> and as I looked at the back of the church, the double doors opened up. And the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen was standing there. And that was my wife, Denise, in her wedding dress. Her dad walked her down the aisle, brought her to, to the front of the steps, and the pastor that was officiating went through uh, the, the, the verses of, you know, who gives her away, and, and her father said, I do. And so I brought her up, received her. And we went through, through all the, the normal things that were involved with, with the wedding. And then we got to the part of the rings. And w- when, when I picked our rings, when I proposed to her, I was very intentional about what I was looking for. There were some very specific things that I wanted to be represented in the rings. Uh, first off, uh, a ring is perfectly round. And so for me, that represented the, the perfect, uh, unending love of God for us in our lives, an example that we we're supposed to have for each other. Uh, the ring that, that, I, that, I put, that I bought for her had uh, three diamonds on it. And so that represented uh, our past, our present, and our future, uh, the life that we are now going to start uh, living together. And uh, of the three diamonds, the, the center diamond was slightly elevated than the other two. And so that represented uh, uh, God being the center of our lives, our, our example for each other. And uh, her ring is, is gold and silver, and so it's two-toned, and so that represented Denise and I. And so as I placed that ring on her finger, a transformation took place. She was no longer Miss Young by identification. She was now Mrs. Botello. She was no longer who she used to be. She was now some, somebody different. The ring going on her hand did not cause her to fall in love with me on that day. The ring going on her hand brought visible attention to the internal transformation that had already taken place. When we baptize people, we are bringing visible attention to the world around us or the transformation that is taking place in that individual. It's bringing attention to the fact of salvation being there, not bringing about salvation itself. 
And as we do this, there is a, a transformation in who we are by identification, by classification, but it's also supposed to be a transformation in who we live for. We are no longer living for ourselves. We're no longer existing for ourselves only. We are now living uh, to be a, an example for Christ. We're now living to be God's representative. And so a doctor is no longer just a doctor. He's now God's representative before the medical association so that the medical association can see wh- how God would respond if God was treating a patient. So a lawyer is no longer just a lawyer. He's now God's representative before the bar association so that the bar association can see how God would respond if God was trying a case. So a teacher is no longer just a teacher. They're now God's representative before the education community so that the education community can see how God would respond if God was teaching a child. It is an external identification, transformation. And we are no longer living for ourselves. And we are living for, to be the representatives of our Lord and Savior. And it is that, that concept that is supposed to be hopefully transforming the world around us as they watch us. And so he says that we must go, we must baptize, but finally he says that we must teach. So, so what are we supposed to teach them? Um, theology, ecclesiology, anthropology, eschatology? Uh-uh. Teach them how to live. Teach them how to observe you. Teach them how to, how to watch you to see what it's supposed to look like. Teach them by your living example in front of them. Now, now I'm not saying that you have to be perfect with, with, with your life. And I know a lot of you will probably say, well, you know, I don't know everything about the Bible. I don't know all the ins and outs. You know, I, I, I constantly blow it on a regular basis. That's okay. Because then at least you're showing them somebody that's real. And that's all that the world really needs. They don't need, you know, these theology classes done on our, on our job sites. All they need is to be able to see somebody that's living it out on a daily basis and that is being real before them. That is all that it has to be. We have to, they have to see somebody that, that acts differently when things get difficult on the job site. And they see you as somebody that, that has this peace about them. They have to see something different when, the, when they hear that you got something difficult going in your life, but, but they hear or they see this trust that you got in God. All they need to see is, is a living example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That is what we are to teach them. And we have to be intentional about this teaching them because if we're not living it out, if we're not being genuine, then we're kind of kind of set up a false concept. If we say, well, you know, be a Christian, but then they see you as somebody who doesn't really try to actually live it out. Again, not being perfect, but at least trying to live it out. You know, what would you do if, if you went to, to uh, a doctor for a checkup and he said that, well, you know, you got some stuff going on. You, you, need, you need surgery. You, you need a surgeon's help. And so they set you up with a surgeon, and on the day of the surgery, you're there talking to the surgeon, and just in your fear and your nervousness, you say, uh, surgeon, how many times have you done this procedure? And that surgeon said, well, I've never done it, <laughs> but I got an A on the test. <laughs> I've never actually performed this procedure, but, but, but you need to know I graduated magna cum laude. Uh, I've never actually done this procedure, but according to my test scores, this is going to go real smooth. I'm sure you would conclude that this is not the surgeon for you. (laughs) As we are out there talking to people about being Christians, we need to be living it out in front of them. We need to be uh, not trying to be perfect, but just being real. We need to live it out so that they see just what it looks like of a person who doesn't have it all together, who faces the same challenges that they do, but you're still living it out. You're still staying uh, close to Jesus Christ. And as we come to church... 
that's what we're supposed to be taking away from church. We're supposed to be taking the things that, that the pastor comes up here and teaches us. We're supposed to be taking those things and applying it because information without application leads to deprivation. But information plus application leads to transformation. And that transformation won't be just simply the transformation in your lives, but it'll be the transformation in the people who's watching your life. And so this incredible concept uh, of, uh, of this concept of, of being challenged to go out and, and, and share the gospel, the Great Commission, that Jesus wants us to not be intimidated because we share in his authority, that we must go, that we must baptize, that we must teach. When we are doing these things, we are in the business of effectively making disciples of Jesus Christ, making followers of him. And as we do these things, we have to recognize that we have Jesus' authority that we go with, but there's one other element that we have to get. And if we don't get this element, it's going to be off or not. The power is not going to be there. The intimidation is going to come and overwhelm us. But there's one other element that we have to realize in our life. And it is the one element that as that chess champion was looking at that painting, he saw one thing that the young man didn't see. And he said, if you could see what I see, it would change the nature of the game. If you could see what I know, it would change how you're looking at this game. If you guys could see what I see, if you guys know what I know, it would change the nature of your walk. And it is the one thing that you have to get in your life, and it's the one thing that the chess champion saw in the painting. And that one thing was that the young man did not realize that on that board, the king still had one more move. You have to realize today as Christians that irregardless of what's going on in your life, irregardless of how things may seem overwhelming, irregardless of how much the war may seem intimidating, always remember the king still has one more move. Amen? Amen. 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 Bow your heads, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and we just thank you for this incredible concept that Jesus lays out before us in the pages of the New Testament. That in and of itself, it can seem like an incredibly intimidating task, but within the, the great commandment itself is embedded this whole idea as to why we do not have to be intimidated. That like Paul, no matter what people say, he cannot be intimidated, and we can better walk in the same footsteps as, as Paul and know that we do not have to be intimidated to share the good news of the gospel. And so I just pray, Lord, that as, as this audience leaves, that they leave with something from this message that they take with them, embed it in their heart, help them to know that they do not have to be intimidated, and help them to always remember that the king still has one more move. In Jesus' precious name, we all say, amen. amen.